Oh, I just love the Jeff effect. It makes me feel so smart. Welcome to the Jeff effect. Welcome back to the Jeff Effect. We have uh, been away from the microphone for a little over a week there, so it feels good to get back. You know, we had an interesting conversation to have today, and it's a little bit overdue. In fact, I think it's a lot overdue. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and this is going to get some people mad. I mean, all right, let me ask you, Nigel, Nigel, um, how do you think this is going to go? Well, boss, I... uh... I think you're going to get some hate mail over this one. Yeah, I think so too. But look, here's the deal. This isn't a hate fest. I'm not going to get in, in here and talk about how the evils of cryptocurrency. That's not my job. That's not what I'm talking about. My job is to deliver real real information and to kind of cut through the crap because we're, we're, we like to have brave conversations. So we're going to have a brave conversation about... Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and uh, Facebook's Libra and uh, uh, economics in general. And so let's, let's, let's dive right into it. So, so you almost have to, you know, whenever you, whenever you start to have a conversation about something that everybody's, you know, upset about for one reason or another, you know, you need to start kind of, you, especially cryptocurrency, you feel like you need to start by complimenting the technology. You know, the technology is really interesting, and there are some technology companies out there. Some of the people, some people I know, some people I'm friends with, are doing some really interesting things with blockchain. But blockchain, as if you now, forgive me. See, I, I don't know. There's a big range of people who listen to this podcast, from people who know know a lot about a topic to know little about a topic to kind of a little bit familiar with a topic. And so I don't know where you are. So if I if I say some stuff that's too basic, forgive me. Um, but we need to make sure everybody's on board with this right now. But blockchain is the underlying technology. It's a distributed technology system, which basically means nobody's in, nobody's in charge. The system takes care of itself. And it's a pretty cool thing. Um, let me talk about, before I talk about currencies, about money, money is something I know a lot about. I'm kind of uniquely, I'm kind of uniquely positioned to talk about this topic. Um, not only have I been around it for a very long time, I've got a strong background in economics, I've got a strong background in technology, I've been, I've been in technology my entire professional career. Um, I've been around these things, I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen the technology develop, so I'm kind of in a unique position to be able to talk about it clearly, hopefully. Um, so if you're, if you're looking to get a, uh, a little bit of uh, information about it, I'm probably a good guy to come to. But the technology underneath it's pretty, pretty interesting. So what it does is it allows, it's like, I think of it this way. You know, if you, if you know technology at all, you, you know that there's a, something in the internet called DNS, Domain Name Service. And that's how when you type in, like, the, like when you type in jeffeffect.com, the DNS is a distributed system. It, it Every, you know, you know, all over the internet, there's nodes that understand that when you type in jeffeffect.com that you're going to a specific IP address and it channels and makes sure the traffic goes in the right direction. It's a, it's a distributed system. So it, it's, uh, if one DNS server or even the DNS servers, uh, you know, for a major block of the internet, if they all go down or they all get, you know, somehow struck by lightning and they go offline, you might have a little bit of a you know a lag as things get redirected as traffic gets redirected, but it's not going to go down because there's a direct copy of the DNS, an authorized copy, 
literally thousands of places all over the world. So it, as a distributed system, it becomes more redundant, it becomes more redundant, it becomes more redundant and more resilient, so we have few, fewer chances of having a, uh, a problem with people finding the internet sites that they're actually looking for. Um, and that's kind of what blockchain's about. A bunch of computers all over the world maintaining individualized records of transactions that are going on or things that are being processed tends to be more secure, and you hide them behind some very complex mathematics and very complex uh, you know, crypt cryptographic algorithms. It's a very big word to mean that kind of coded funky math stuff that makes it hard, makes it hard to uh, hack and hard to replicate. Not impossible to hack, not impossible to replicate, but hard, and it's so hard that there's probably not enough time to, to hack it or replicate it before the entire system has moved on and it's different again, so you'd have to be starting from scratch. So we're gonna talk more about the security of the system later on, but it's really, really good for keeping track of things. And you know, if you, if, uh, uh, what will it be good for? Well, there's lots of security issues, just general information and data security things on the internet that this would be really, really good for. But there's also some interesting practical ideas that people have to use blockchain technology to solve a lot of inefficiencies or problems in their economy. Let me give you an example of that. Um, you know, uh, if you've ever purchased, if you ever bought or sold your house, you know that you have an escrow company. And the escrow company, their whole job is to make sure the paperwork's all together. They, they do a title, there's a title company does a title search to make sure that the person who's selling the property really does own the property. And then they check the you know, history of, you know, if, if there's any mechanics liens or any, you know, uh, uh, liens against the property so it can't have to be resolved before it can sell. They just check all the paperwork, right? And, and you pay them a lot of money to check all the paperwork. And then they have an insurance policy that basically says, okay, we've checked all the paperwork and our insurance policy for a million dollars will pay out if we've made a mistake. So they're like basically a big insurance company. It's really kind of what they are. They're paper processors, insurance companies. Very vital. I'm not knocking the profession. And we all need them to make sure we don't have major, you know, we have more trust and confidence in the real estate transactions when we make them. But it's a very expensive... Very time-consuming process, and this is the type of thing that, if the paperwork could be handled and digitized and processed through a blockchain, it'd probably be a lot cheaper, a lot faster, and uh, uh, it would probably speed transactions uh, you know, along the way. So cheaper, faster, safer, more secure, no room for human error. Sounds like a good application for me. Something else, picture this, fractional ownership of anything. You know, like right now you own stocks, right? If, if you do, if you, in your investment portfolio, you might own stocks or bonds. And basically when you own a stock, you own a piece of a company, right? So if a company has, you know, 100 million shares issued and you own a share, you own one 100 millionth of that company. It's not, it's an investment in, in that company is, is part ownership of that company, at least theoretically. Some stocks out there are doing some funky things. We'll talk about that some other time, no doubt. Um, but ma imagine, the, the, you know, that's a very expensive process. For a company to go public, to issue stock, and to track stock transactions. I mean, if, if, I, want to, if, I, own, if I own 10 shares of, of, of say, uh, IBM, well, that, that's a bad example. I, I wouldn't buy by IBM today. Say what? Um, let's say I owned 10 shares of Shopify, which is doing very, very well. 
and I want to sell that, I have to use a service. And it's not very expensive these days because it's all done electronically, but I have to pay like 7 or $9 for the transaction. And, and they, it's a very complex process, gone through market makers and brokers to go through the major markets to allow me to sell my 10 shares of Shopify to you. And you want to buy them from me, and this is the process we have to go through. And, and then three days later, the whole market clears, and the money comes to me, and the stock shares go to you, and it's registered with the company, Shopify, and yada, yada, yada. Well, imagine if that was being conducted over the blockchain. We wouldn't need all the intermediary people if, you know, for, for transactions, for small transactions that are you know, a few dozens or hundreds or even maybe a few thousands of shares you could conduct transactions over the blockchain and transfer ownership and there'd be a permanent log and a, and a well, theoretically permanent log you know, to, to keep and manage those transactions for you. So these are just a couple of examples, but even now, so, so because that all thing, with, all that would be so much more efficient and so much cleaner, right? Imagine you could apply fractional ownership easily to just about anything. You could have a fractional ownership of a building. You could have a fractional ownership of uh, equipment. You could have fractional ownership of just about anything because you'd have a blockchain set up to accurately measure and manage who owns their shares and how much they own. And it'd be something that everybody had access to, complete uh, transparency, everybody could see it, everybody would understand who owns what. So these are a couple, and, and there's lots of other applications I can imagine that, that where blockchain really has a lot of value, potentially for us going forward, to remove a lot of cost, time, and friction from transactions, and that just, you know, I'm an economist at heart, that makes everything so much, so much better. Um, so that's that. So. I, I've gotten that obligatory thing out of the way, right? I've pushed that to the side. I've talked about the fact that, yes, I'm not a blockchain hater. I'm not a, techno I'm not a, I'm not a Luddite. Luddites were people who would smash printing presses and cotton gins because they were afraid of technology. Then tonight we're going to party like it's 1699. We've been spending most our lives living in an Amish paradise. A churn I'm not a Luddite. I'm the opposite of Luddite. I love when technology takes and makes us more efficient. Um, and this has a potential to make all of us more efficient sometime in my lifetime. And I think it'll be a good thing. Um, but we're not talking about blockchain. Don't confuse the two things. Blockchain is an underlying technology. It's kind of a, it's actually an underlying technology. It's software code and a, and a, and a process. It's a way of managing these things. We're talking about currency talking about money. And this whole thing got started with Bitcoin. And, and you know what? I got to, you know, you know this. I know this. I'm going to be talking generalities because I'm trying to explain the concepts. And so I'm going to use some specific examples. But there are, there's got to be, I mean, I haven't even counted recently, but there have got to be two or three hundred different cryptocurrencies or tokens or other types of things out there that are all related to cryptocurrency. There's got to be two or three hundred of them out there. And the principles that I'm talking about, about why some might work and some will fail, in my opinion, and why it's a good thing or why it's a bad thing, these, that's, I'm going to talk in generality. So you have to kind of apl not apply to the specifics, although 
Bitcoin's a pretty good specific to talk about. So I will use, be using Bitcoin as my primary example. Some of the things that I talk about with Bitcoin will apply to other currencies. Some will apply to all other cryptocurrencies, and others might apply to none of them. So why did we do it in the first place? Okay, so you know, the, the, uh, cryptocurrency really kind of sprang up. I'm not going to get up too much into a, a history lesson, right? Um, is is uh, about how Bitcoin got started. That's that necessary. I'm not going to dive into the history, right? Um, but things really got rolling after the financial crisis. And that was kind of like a perfect storm psychologically for the world to kind of get in the mood for something like this. It kind of appears like a solution, right? So after, after the financial crisis, what did we have? We had a general mistrust of central banks, banking, and, and any authority, really. You know, and that's nothing new. People have been arguing for and against central banks since, since before we had central banks. Um, there's also a mistrust of what we call crony capitalism, um, there's a strong desire for what people call democratic capitalism, um, although that's a bit of a misnomer because in a democracy people get to vote and you know, undecide what's bought and sold, but they call it democratic capitalism. I'm not going to argue the semantics of that right now. Um, and democratic money, democratic transactions. Um, and there's something else too, and, th and this is kind of a touchy one, right? There's, there's, this, there's this almost a libertarian belief it's almost a faith at this point that inflation, and quote unquote, inflation is a form of theft. And therefore, you know, that's a, that's a statement made by one of my heroes, Milton Friedman, back in the 1970s. He actually made that statement, but that was a different time. Oh, hey, boss. Uh, I, got, I got a Milton Friedman clip right here from last time. Do you want me to play it? Uh, yeah, that's great. Go, go ahead and slip that in. There's only one way you can stop inflation, and that's by having the government create less money and spend less money. And the reason we have inflation is because the public at large wants inflation. You people want inflation. You don't say so. No one of you will say, I want inflation. But I ask you, do you want the prices at which you sell things to go down? Not the prices at which you sell them. You want the prices at which you buy them to go down. What everybody wants is for the prices of the things he buys to go down and the prices of the things he sells to go up, but that's a neat trick if you can manage it. But isn't it, isn't it good old Adam Smith? Isn't that what he? Of course, is? it's good old Adam Smith, provided you have a control in terms of the total amount of money available. But it's not good old Adam Smith for those printing presses to be pouring out paper oh, money, okay. which, uh, which you and I and the government in particular can use. We don't, we don't create inflation by our personal behavior. We create inflation by getting our legislators, the people in Washington, to vote for more and more spending and by objecting to extra taxes and therefore by having it financed by printing money. Things are different now. I've talked about that in previous podcasts. But uh, that, the fact that uh, uh, the currency is uh, most, most of the industrialized world, most of the modern world is walking around with uh, currencies that have kind of a, a target inflation rate. They actually trying to make sure there's always a little bit of inflation every year. And I've talked about that before as well, too. Um, and some people just think that's a form of theft. I, I, I disagree in the current context. Um, there's also kind of a generational faith in technology, right? Um, there's the, you know, the, we, we, you know, I'm a member of this, I'm, the, I'm like the spear tip of this generation that you know, really came up with technology, was really taking hold. And uh, 
there's a faith in it. There's a thing that, okay, well, you know, we don't really need central banks. We don't really need government managing money. We can solve that problem with technology and, and take care of it ourselves. Um, and uh, you know what? I think one of the biggest reasons that people like cryptocurrencies is, is they don't understand what money is. I did a whole podcast on that. Um, I'll, I'll try to link to it in the notes later on. But uh, that kind of implies a lack of really kind of what a, a, a core economics edu- education. I don't mean that in an insulting way, but it's telling. I mean, I look back into the history of some of the biggest cryptocurrencies out there. And, you know, like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is a really interesting idea. It started with, a, with an anonymously written or a pseudonymously written uh, academic paper. Um, and uh, you know what? It really makes sense from a software programming network security standpoint. But the original idea and the first people who put the first Bitcoins together, I just, I didn't see any economists in the mix. Now, maybe you can, maybe you're going to correct me on this. Maybe you're going to say, hey, Jeff, uh, you know, Supercoin that came out from Sweden last year, that uh, that coin has two economists were, okay, well, point that out to me, please, because I will actually take a look at that. But, you know, uh, most of the Bitcoins that I've, uh, not, not, sorry, most of the cryptocurrencies I've looked at, you know, the, the people who've created them, there weren't, there weren't any economists on the team. And, and if, because and I, I have to think that if they had a couple of good economists on the team, they would have set this up a little bit differently. The, the potential pitfalls would have been a little bit more um, evident, would have been a little easier to see. Um, so that's the why we did it, right? But here's the thing. It all starts with this. You know, we're, ta- we're calling them currencies. And, and I think the problem's in the name, right? We have to ask ourselves, is our cryptocurrencies, are they money? Are they, are they money? Because we can use just about anything as a currency, Right? We can use anything to, to, to buy, sell, or trade, we, anything we decide, all agree on that we're going to do. But let's talk specifically, that, you know, from an economic perspective, money has to perform certain functions. And historically, no matter what comprised, no matter what, you know, whether it was, you know, beads, shell beads in Central Africa, stone rings in the South Pacific, um, small tin animal figures in Indonesia, you know, small clay round balls in Mesopotam- ancient Mesopotamia. All of the things that were used as money had certain characteristics, certain characteristics in common. So the question, first question we have is, is it money? Is Bitcoin money? All right, so what's the first thing? You know, what is money? Money is a medium of exchange. It is something that we use to conduct transactions. Money is also a, what's called a unit of account. Unit of account, which means it's divisible, it's got a relative worth, and it's verifiable. Third, it's a store of value. It, it, it's a, it can be saved, stored effectively, retrieved, and importantly, importantly, predictably, and that when it's saved and stored and retrieved, when you do so, the value is predictable. These, I didn't make these up. These are classic uh, 
you know, uh, de- uh, you know, s- you know, classic attributes of money that are used, you know, in finance and e- economics since be- well, before I was born. I say it has one more. My, my, I have a personal. This is now. This is me adding something onto it. Something I've been saying for a long time is that money is a communication of value, and that without, without an exchange of money, whatever you define money to be, you are not communicating the val. The, you're not communicating the value, and there's an important distinction there. I should do an entire podcast on that because I think it's pretty freaking cool. And it tells you why. It tells you why a lot of the problems we have with uh, with redistribution programs. All right. So, medium of exchange, unit of account, store of value. Therefore, you know, since these are the things that money does for us, therefore, money must be it must money must have some attributes to accomplish those things, right? It must be the word is fungible, right? Fungible, um, and uh, that means mutual substitution. It means it means there's 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 value that can trade back and forth equally. It must be durable. Not just not just durable. I mean, if you if you make if you make money out of soap bubbles, your currency has a lifespan of a couple of seconds, right? I'm making it sounds funny, but believe it or not, you could you could actually probably figure something out to do that. But but you know, you the the currency itself has to have some durability, and uh, the value has to be durable. It has to be portable. Portable. Now, this is something that's made other currencies fail throughout history. Because it couldn't be moved, right? It couldn't be it couldn't be transported to make transactions properly. Um, so portable is important. It has to be recognizable, which means the, the the big thick word they they say and they teach us in classes is cognizability. All right, I'm probably even pronouncing that wrong, but you know, cognizant cognizability, um, and it's the it's something that you can recognizable and be aware. Let me give you an example of that. You know, you're standing on a street corner in uh, on New York, and you want to hail a cab. You stick a couple of twenties in your hand, and you hold them in the air. The guy can be, a, you know, three blocks up, and he knows what you're holding, right? He knows what it is. It's recognizable. He knows it's money. He probably knows how much it is, right? And again, importantly, because that's the whole store of value thing, it must be stable. It must have stable value. And if you're kind of a Bitcoin fan. You probably know where I'm going on that one. So the first thing, you know, first question there is medium of exchange. Can you buy things? And and specifically, I mean, uh, you can buy some things with money, but can you buy things with Bitcoin? And everybody will tell you yes. I'm telling you no. Now. This, I guess, this is demonstrably not true. I mean, you 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 can take and uh, you can take and and go online and, and and conduct a private transaction with somebody and send him Bitcoin in exchange for him sending you something, hopefully legal. Um, but you can't go to the supermarket and buy something in Bitcoin. And and here's something else too. You know, I mean, I, I actually did this. Uh, you know, as, as an experiment, I, I gave this. I gave a presentation to the uh, economics department at. Uh, at a, a university in the Midwest, and they, uh, I, I, I actually, I, mean, how many, I, mean, I think I had that list here. One, two, three, four, five, six. I, I, I actually, I actually sampled sixteen websites that claimed that they accepted Bitcoin, and I walked through the transaction process. And and uh, let me tell you what's going on. None of the companies 
really accepted Bitcoin. If you, if you selected that you wanted to pay with Bitcoin, you would, uh, an intermediary, you know, a modal window would pop up. And it's basically like, like PayPal, right? It, it, it became like paying with PayPal because a third-party service that does nothing but handle transactions at Bitcoin jumped in the game and uh, actually accepted your Bitcoin and paid the vendor in, in U.S. currency. That's what was really happening behind it. So were you buying something? If you, say, say you were I mean, one of the people at the time, I mean, Overstock.com, made a big, big splash about it and did a big press release. I think it was more press release than actual technology. Big press release that they're not accepting Bitcoin. woo And uh, so I went and tried their, their, you know, their service, and I, you know, it was very much like that. Overstock never accepted the Bitcoin. Basically, you know, the, we, we invented the Internet to remove middlemen and, you know, the, anybody who's accepting that I've experienced, now maybe there's another somebody out here who's not doing that, let me know. But every major retailer, every major business out there is using an intermediary to take and do the conversion for them. And, and there's very, very good reasons for that because um, they're not set up to handle Bitcoin. Um, in fact, if, if, and if they could, there's actually some question of whether or not it's legal for them to do so. Um, but when they report their transactions, they can't report, you know, to their stockholders that, they, you know, how many sales they had in Bitcoin. Uh, but they can take and report in U.S. dollars, so they have to make sure they only receive U.S. dollars. So it was handled very much like a foreign exchange. Um, and uh, so they, didn't, they never accepted the Bitcoin. Intermedi- a third-party broker, if you will, got in the middle of the transaction, became a middleman, took a cut of the action, and you got your merchandise and felt good about your, your purchase with Bitcoin. But uh, Overstock.com got good old U.S. cash. And that's how everybody's doing it. So... I'm saying they, you can't buy anything with, with Bitcoin, not really. I, I, even, I walked through this process also with Newegg. Um, you know, this is actually, I've I got to be fair, this was actually, uh, you know, geez, more than a year ago, I, I did a sample and did some screen captures. I was trying to show somebody what I was talking about with this. I've been, ta- I've been, think- I've been, I've been having this conversation so many times, it's good I'm putting down a podcast because I've, I've actually did a screen grabs as I walked through it to show people what the process looked like. And I did, I did it with Newegg. And, but ultimately, you know, there's a, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, all the disclaimers that are there, you know, and that, and that, you know, letting you know that your payment method and that you, you know, you have 15 minutes to do your transaction and that something's going to happen on your end. And then you know, the, the transaction has to be authenticated. And, you know, if you're, if you're into Bitcoin, you know how that works. You know, when a transaction that, that two people are going into, you know, a bunch of other people do a lot of math to make that transaction close and they get a little cut as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, middlemen that are injected into any Bitcoin transaction. That just, that's, the, that's how the thing was set up. And uh, they just, you know, New, uh, Newegg wasn't getting any, uh, any money from any, any, real, any real Bitcoin. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, moving on. The next question is, you know, is it even legal? You know, and and you, you, we reflexively say, well, there's a, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, you, know, uh, uh, and head, you know, hedge investment at the, at the commodities exchange in Chicago. You know, it, it's there. Um, uh, and so obviously it's obviously Bitcoin is legal, obviously, because everybody knows it's there. The major websites, you know, financial websites track the price of Bitcoin and uh, all that stuff. And so it's got to be legal. But you know what? The answer is kind of maybe. And, and so if you look at, if you're in the U.S., 
pull a dollar bill or any denomination of U.S. currency out of your pocket and, take, and read it. I mean, just looking real close and right under the words, usually right under the words United States of America, there's a little simply typed and sans serif font. It's like, it's like seven-point font that says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So by law, right, you have to, if you're in the United States, you have to accept U.S. currency. It, it's, it's literally the law, right? And so we know that's legal. But there's no, there's no law authorizing that you have to take Bitcoin. There probably won't be. And, and you say, well, I don't care about that. You know, it's a federal government down with the man. Well, good for you. Um, but I'm telling you that there are some countries in the world where you, the use of cryptocurrencies is still illegal. And there's no question about that. Um, so, you know, is it, is it even legal? I don't know the answer to that question. But I, I can tell you this. Um, it was ruled, uh, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission took a look at it, took a look at Bitcoin. And the only reason they haven't taken any, you know, they haven't taken any action against it is they said it's not money. They say, Securities Exchange Commission, they say it's a shadow investment. It's a, it's a derivative investment of some sort, although nobody can really tell anybody what it's a derivative of, that it is a security. Really poor choice of words, and I'll get to that more in a minute, but the, the, you know, that's the reason why it's legal that it exists, is because it's not considered, but the government does not call it money or consider it money, they consider it to be a security that's traded, right? Um, what else? But there's an ex, you know, the, but in all of that too, you know, I want to give some credit. I want to tip my hat because the existence of Bitcoin actually it actually accomplished something it set out to do in one respect, right? In one respect, and that is uh, in uh, Venezuela. You know, if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, I use you know Venezuela, a wonderful prototypical example of. Uh, you know, of a socialist economy running amok and devaluing the currency and then experiencing super hyperinflation and, 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 and really just laying waste to the economic stability of, all, of an entire people. The, what, the richest nation in South America has become one of the poorest nations in the world uh, due to, uh, you, know, you know, socialism. But, you know, that said, uh, some people there, some enterprising people, you know, they took advantage because because people people will uh, uh, use incentives to b- f- find a way to better themselves one way or another. Um, being a socialist economy, electricity is heavily subsidized. Electricity is really cheap. At least it was last time I checked in Venezuela. So a lot of people set up Bitcoin mining servers. Uh, in uh, in basements and in bodegas, and they had no merchandise to sell, no bread to sell, so they might as well set up a server and start mining Bitcoin. And uh, they did so, and have been able to generate a return that uh, a few people in uh, Venezuela have used to to keep alive and to be able to purchase necessities. Everything. I think uh, I read an article a while back from CNBC that. You know, people were it was very heartfelt description about how people were shipping in everything from insulin to baby diapers and formula using Bitcoin because 
you know, the government was so corrupt. But in a way, this is, a t this is, this is, this is one aspect that where Bitcoin was actually able to accomplish what the founders or the idea people behind it actually kind of intended. It was separate from the government. If the government found out and was able to track down the people doing this, it might not end well for them. So is it legal? Yes? No? I don't know. Next question, is it safe? Now, m no money is safe. And, and I got to be, we have to be even-handed about this. Um, you know, anything, anything of value can be stolen by somebody determined enough to steal it. And I actually have a, have a different way of looking at that as well, right? Um, so your credit card, it's sort of safe because if somebody steals your credit card number, you have recourse. Um, money in your wallet, somebody can rob you. I mean, it, the banks, banks can be robbed, but then there, there's insurance policies in the bank. You know, there's, there's these things we've set up to make banks and banking with currency safer than it might otherwise naturally be. But you know what? Just like there would have been like the great train robbery, we you know there's there was like the the great heist you know the you know the, the uh, I, I I told somebody it's like the rise and fall of the Ethereum DAO and and I'm sure that people you know in the, crypt, in the cryptocurrency market are, you know. They're sick of hearing this story, but it's a it's a story that that's, needs to be told, right? It was in June of 2016, so almost ex exactly four years ago. Um, the, the DAO was a crowd-funded venture capital fund deployed on the Ethereum cryptocurrency and blockchain platform, and it was hacked. This, this system that's supposed to be impenetrable and unhackable was hacked. You know, it was originally funded with about 150 million US dollars, and nobody knows for sure but between 40 million and 50 million worth of Ethereum was stolen and untraceable because the, the container wallets were, were hacked. But it's really what happened next that puts the cherry on the top of the story. And, and so let's, what happened next? Uh, the founders bailed it out, uh, but in a weird way. They, 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 like they took a time machine, they wound the blockchain, the, the, the DAO blockchain, they wound it back in time, I think it was about 30 days, before the hack. And so all the transactions, so, so, so think of it this way. If the hack was, on, uh, was like in the middle of June, right, and they discovered it a couple weeks later, they, they, they said, all right, well, on June 30th, we're going to rewind and negate all transactions all the way back to June 1st. So we cover the entire hacking window. And that way we could take and put in a patch and we won't get hacked again, at least not the same way. And, but all transactions in that window were just wiped out. Reset the clock. So anybody who did a transaction in their exchange during that time had to redo the transaction. Problem being, you know, Currency fluctuated between then and now. All the things weren't the same. It was really, really rather a traumatic event for the community, and they hard forked it at that time too, so that uh, they could they could change the code and, and make it safe and secure. But here's where rubber meets the road. One of the one of the selling points for cryptocurrencies is that the blockchain is what's called immutable. Immutable. Now, actually. The precise meaning of immutable means that, you know, unsilenceable. But in this case, it mean, meant unchangeable. 
and unchangeable condition, so that once transactions were, were occurred, they were completely secure. That, that's, that's one of the strongest selling points for cryptocurrency, is that the, the transaction is done, it's secure, it's authenticated, nobody can mess around with it, and you're done. But what they proved is that it wasn't. So by saving the DAO blockchain, they proved it wasn't as secure as everyone believed it to be. Not really, right? And, and I'm going to extend upon that point because a blockchain, you know, yes, all you computer science guys out there, um, you know, you deep computer science and crypto guys out there, you are screaming at your headphones right now or you're getting ready to write me uh, nasty tweets uh, because you think I'm just dead wrong. You think that the cryptographic security behind your favorite blockchain is so impenetrable that it would take, that you'll, you'll say something like this to me. You'll say, it'll take, it would take a million supercomputers a million years to crack the code and everything would simply have moved on by then. That's what you say, that's what these guys say to me all the time. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. And, and, and here's, here's, here's the simple truth of it, right? Um, any computer system can be hacked, compromised, and accessed. Any system. The only thing that's required for it to happen is for the economics of that to exceed the costs. I dare you to say that again. Any computer system can be hacked. The only thing that's required for it to happen is for the economics of that to exceed the costs. So I truly believe that computer speeds and computer capacities and compute capacity are going to continue to accelerate and continue to become more and more powerful, um, probably more powerful than we imagine right now. And it's going to happen at a very, very quick rate. And all that's going to be required for somebody to break a blockchain is for the value of what they can access by breaking the blockchain to, ex to, to exceed the costs of breaking it. That's it. It's an economic principle. It's an economic principle that has, that has served mankind for more than 10,000 years, right? If the, once the, if the incentive is strong enough, somebody will devise a path. Any system made by man can be broken by man provided with the correct incentives. I will be happy to debate that at length with anybody who disagrees. Um, all right, so that's there's something else that that uh, particular DAO uh, Ethereum uh, uh, bailout, we'll call it, the, the heist bailout proved, is that decentralizing was not achieved. The core developers came to the rescue. Uh, the, the distributed system did not solve the problem. The core developers came back in and rehacked their own system. The core developers solved the problem. Um, and it they were saving their company. And so, you know, the, the security and the immutability, if you will, of their system to them was less valuable than the company that they were saving. All right? All right. That's it. That's true. All right. Now... Let me tell you about a specific problem, and, and you can debate this all day long with me with different cryptocurrencies, but I'm going to talk, talk about a specific problem related to Bitcoin right now, but it's, it's a problem that is common to a lot of cryptocurrencies. And uh, the problem is that it's got 
deflation built in. Okay, and, and it's really easy to prove this. It's super easy to prove this because the people who, uh, if you to ask it, in, in fact, if you're a Bitcoin person, be honest with yourself for a minute and, ta- and just think about all the times you've bragged about how much money you've made on your Bitcoin. Every time that goes up, ta- you know, hey, my Bitcoin's up $1,000 a coin. Ha, 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 I bought it at 700 or whatever. You know, that is the conversation you have with people. And in fact, what started me, what prompted me to make this podcast, specifically the conversation I was having online with a very nice guy, and he said, you know, I, you know, you know the, online we have what's called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out, FOMO. We all know what that is. We see it online all the time, fear of missing out. And, and the guy said, yeah, you know, I don't worry about missing out on cars. I don't worry about missing out on trips. I don't worry about missing out on, you know, anything else. He said, but the one thing that I have some FOMO about is Bitcoin. And, and, and that's what prompted this, this, me to record this podcast, it, because that triggered my brain again, right? The fear of missing out. Nobody, nobody says, you know what? I should have stuffed more $100 bills in my mattress. Well, I suppose some people say things like that. But, but people, that, people don't worry about missing out on money in their savings account. They've got it. The money is in their savings account. People don't have a fear of missing out on money in their savings account. But people have fear of missing out on Bitcoin. Hmm. And, and the reason is because it's had this meteoric rise. And I'm, I'm just going off of memory right now, so you know, please don't. I mean, I could, I could go to the coin desk and, and pull up a history of Bitcoin, or just use it as an example. But you know, when Bitcoin first started trading, it was like 100 bucks or 120 bucks or 130 bucks a coin. And, you know, at one point, it was over $19,000 a coin just a couple years later. And then it dropped down to like four, three or $4,000 a coin. And now it's back up in the $10,000 range per coin. You know, it's had these wild gyrations. And I have no doubt, not even no doubt, I'm 100% certain that there are a bunch of people who achieved millionaire status because they bought Bitcoin at 100 bucks or 120 bucks coin or 700 bucks a coin, and then they sold it all at $20,000 a coin, and, may, and now, they're, now they're, they've got a Lambo uh, parked in their front yard. I do not doubt that these people exist. That's the definition of, of deflation. When you, when you, have, when you have money... That's going to be worth more tomorrow. And, and every single thing is money's, money's value is always, we, we talked about this in the definition of money, the functions that money performs, it, the relative value, right, of it. We, we think of money, it's, it's there. hundred bucks is in your pocket. What is a hundred bucks? It's a re- I'm taking my wife out to dinner tomorrow night for our anniversary. And I'm going to budget about a hundred bucks for it. We're going to go to a nice little restaurant here on the island. We're going to have a couple of cocktails, maybe an appetizer, depending if we have a dessert or not. I can see it easily being 80 to 100 bucks. That's what 100 bucks is to me. It's a really nice dinner with my wife. That's what it is. Right? It's, it's a, has a, I also know it's, it's one-tenth or, you know, what's going to be one-tenth of my, my, uh, my mortgage payment when I get the new condo, when the condo's done. I know these things, right? I have these things. Relative, the money has a relative value, right? Well, if that hundred dollars is going to be worth more tomorrow, why spend it today? 
It, it, let, let's say, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm, I'm, you know, really, we lots of, you know, we're in, the, we're in the Caribbean these days, so lots of tropical fruit. So let's say I'm buying, uh, you know, uh, I'm buying 10 pounds of pineapple for $10. But if I know that tomorrow I can buy 11 pounds of pineapple for that same $10, why don't I just wait until tomorrow? If, if I know that at the end of the month, that same $10 is going to buy 20 pounds of pineapple, I'm just going to hold up that purchase as long as I possibly can. Because money has value relative to the basket of goods and services that you can purchase with it, right? We need, for money to perform its primary functions as money, it needs to have a reasonable level of monetary stability. Up until Bitcoin the only people who did, you know, who did currency trading were people who were, uh, you know, hedging international transactions or performing wild speculative bets. That's it. Heck, that's how, I think that's how George Soros made his money on the silver markets or something like that. Doesn't matter. But, but the point being is that money stability, the stable value of money is important. But deflation, deflation is, is the devil. Deflation is the devil. More heartache and pain and economic upheaval has been carved out of people's lives by deflation than ever has been carved out by inflation. They're both bad, but you know what? It's like a, it's like a, it, it's a, a little, and that's why we have inflation, by the way, these days. I mean, back in the 1970s, we had a whole podcast on this. I'm not going to go into it again, but 1970s, when we were running high inflation rate, you know, of like, you know, 10%, 12%, 15%, that was a huge problem. It's a huge problem that had to be fixed, and because uh, it was it was taking away people's livelihoods, it was terrible, right? But we have targeted inflation these days. The, the Fed's targeting between one and a half and two two and a half percent inflation every year is what they would like to have, because it's like it's like an inoculation, right? A little bit of inflation can inoculate an economy against unexpected deflation, and deflation's a killer. Deflation can bring everything to a screeching halt. Deflation means loans stop, right, on, on, on real estate and property, on equipment and financing, because things are, the, the, the pricing of goods is going down over time, and you're paying back with more valuable money than, than, than it cost you. It's a terrible thing for an economy. So that's why they structure a little bit of inflation. You can agree with that or disagree with it, but you got to know there's a reason they're doing it. And it's not to steal your money. It's to bring monetary stability to an economy. That's why they're doing it. But Bitcoin, it, it has de- de- it's not just the wild speculation that's driving the price up. It's, it's, the, it's like all inflation and deflation, it's a supply and demand issue. If you have too much money, you have inflation. If you have too little money, you have deflation. And Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is limited. I mean, it, it, uh, it was built, de- defined into the system, bit, the total supply of Bitcoin was limited to 21 million coins. And the last time I checked, it might, it might have changed since now, and they might be doing something else. But I think that they're doing some forking and some splitting, and, you know, they're, they're doing some Bitcoin splits and stuff like that. But, the, but stick with me. The concept was, the estimate, estimated limit of Bitcoin was, was forecast to be reached in the year 2140. So, with the, and, and with every passing day, getting a Bitcoin through, or through mining with servers, through the, the process of what they call mining, right? Doing that process takes longer and longer, takes more and more resources. 
So Bitcoins get harder to get and more, they're more expensive to get at over time. And then slowly but surely, fewer and fewer coins are on the market. Well, not, not fewer and fewer coins, but the supply trickles down until it becomes new coin becomes zero. Now, some people out there go, yay, that's what I want. I want Bitcoins to keep going up in value in a crazy way, but that's not how money works. Bitcoin is designed for monetary instability. You can't fix it. There's no fork that's going to fix it. The basic structure and the definitions of Bitcoin make it instable, value-wise, on purpose. That was the objective, which doesn't make any sense from an economic standpoint. You can't run an economy on it. So, question, I'm going to repeat the question. Is Bitcoin money? Is it a medium of exchange? I'll give it a maybe. I think that, you know, uh, people are doing private transactions with it. Public transactions are going through intermediaries who never actually touch it. So I'll say maybe. Unit of account is divisible. Does it have a relative worth? Is it verifiable? I say, yeah, the relative worth thing's got me concerned, but it's divisible. Obviously, fractional Bitcoin is the concept that everybody's making small purchases on. And is it verifiable? That's, that's the premise of the blockchain. Is it a storehouse of value? Can you save it, store it, retrieve it in a predictable way with relative value? And the answer is no. So it fails one of its primary, primary uh, uh, qualifications. So, so that said, is it fungible? Does it have mutual substitution? Well, yeah, people, people exchange Bitcoin for real dollars all the time. Is it durable? Maybe, we'll see. Uh, there's no way to know right now. Um, is it portable? This is cool. Yes, it is. It's, it's, a, it's based in that respect. It's a digital currency. It's, it's as portable as your credit card. You carry, you know, your Bitcoin wallet through, a, through an application on your smartphone if you want to. And uh, I, I pay for things with my smartphone via PayPal or via my credit cards by tapping some things. Um, I could do the same thing with Bitcoin. So, it, so Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, they get portability. Is it recognizable? Maybe. I mean... A lot of the modern world's heard of it. Most people don't know what it is. I'm trying to clear that up a little bit, but it, it, maybe. <clears throat> Finally, is it stable? The answer is no. And, and, and what gets me is that since this, this is a primary function of money in an economy, it, it, it is something you have to have to make money money. And people brag about how unstable it is. The, the brag point, the cool factor is how unstable the currency is. Let that just sink into your brain for a little bit. Stable currency has been the objective for hundreds of years, and Bitcoin's on the scene now, and everybody who owns Bitcoin wants more instability. They want the price to go up because they feel that they're getting rich. Maybe they are. It's not money, though. Um, all right, there's some other technical things. I, I got a list of bullet points here of technical tidbits, but nobody wants to hear those. If you, if you want to hear the technical tidbits about, you know, how the assumption, you know, some assumptions built into the code that I think are an error, shoot me a note, happy to go over it. Just a couple things. Um, let's talk about one more thing that's kind of cool because it's kind of more recent because it started happening last year at this time. You know, let's talk about Facebook's Libra. It's a little bit different. He's calling it cryptocurrency. It ain't really. And yeah, Mark Zuckerberg's going to be mad at me about this one. All right. So Facebook's Libra. It was formally announced in June of 2019. Last year. I'm recording this in June of 2020. Um, 
it's not really an open system. You know, they, 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 Facebook created the Libra Association, which was supposed to be this affiliation of other businesses and companies that wanted to participate in it, and they, and they and uh, you know to join to contribute technology and to be part of the whole deal. But you know, PayPal didn't like what they were doing, and they left the Libra Association in October. And then just a couple of weeks later, the same month, still in October, eBay left, Mastercard left, Visa. Stripe, you know, Mercado Pago, which I think is a you know, Hispanic uh, uh, nation uh, uh, payment uh, a gateway, and Booking Holdings, they, they all left by the end of October. So why? What's the difference? Well, this isn't really a cryptocurrency. It's, it, I think of it differently. Think of Facebook Libra like poker chips. No, but ca- casino chips. If you've ever been to Vegas or Atlantic City, you get the, they have these ornate chips, right? You know, so let's talk about those things. So why, have you ever wondered why when you go to gamble, they, they take your cash, they shove it down, a, literally shove it down a hole and then give you a stack of chips. Lots of reasons for this. The first thing, um, it's, you know, it, it takes away, you know, in the dimly lit and alcohol, you know, filled rooms of the casino, um, you know, people aren't going to slip you funny money. It, 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 it's easier to t- see, to lay it out and to count it, get it all organized and to put chips. The chips are strongly color coded so that they're very easy for, uh, you know, casino bosses and dealers to, uh, to see quickly and recognize quickly. That's true. But there's something else too. There's something in the psychology of it. If you're throwing down, you know, tw- you know, Andrew Jackson's on the blackjack table, dude, you're, listen- you're sitting there listening to the Rat Pack on the speaker, you got an Elvis impersonator on the stage next door, and they're serving you some free cheap cocktails where you sit, and, but you're still throwing down some Andrew Jackson's, you feel that. There's a psychological thing of payment, of that you're actually paying for something. By taking the, the and swapping the currency for these plastic chips as high quality and heavy as they may be. It's a psychological shift in the human brain. There's some scientific studies that back that up, but you know, roll with me on this for the minute. And people are more willing to, if you, if, uh, uh, they've, they've tested this, if you know, people gambling will gamble more and feel less bad about losing if they were gambling with chips than if they were gambling with money. If you give somebody, you know, $100 worth of chips and $100 in bills, and you put them at, at, at gambling tables, you know, the people who have the $100 in bills will gamble a little bit and then shove the money in their pocket. The people with $100 worth of chips will keep gambling until the money's gone. It's a psychological thing, right? So there was that. Then, several years ago, you know, the whole gift card thing came out, and it quickly became apparent quickly became apparent that gift cards are a freaking money machine. Money machine. And the reason they are is because, you know, it's not, first of all, it's not real money. It's a gift card, right? People protect money. It's the same psychological format. You're changing what I call when I, uh, real money for fake money, right? Changing real money for fake money. People, feel, people would feel worse losing a $100 bill than they would a $100 gift card. They just would. It, it's the way this human psychology works. It's the game that they play. 
Secondly, gift cards, um, they, they entrap you, really. I mean, if you give somebody $100, they can spend it any way they want to. You give somebody a $100 gift card to Macy's, they have to spend it at Macy's. They have to. You can't spend it anyplace else. So it captures the customer. If you give somebody a gift card to any place, that, that purchase is captured. But here's the real magic. Billions of dollars a year, just in the United States alone, go unredeemed on gift cards. And it's not uncommon. It's so hard to hit it right in the money. I mean, have you ever done this? I mean, I do, I do this all the time when I'm filling my tank with gas. We, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here and I'm going to try to top up this tank and I'm going to try to hit exactly 24 bucks. Boom. You're always a penny short or a penny over. You go, dang. Hitting it right on the button is just super hard, right? Well, when you're purchasing, you get a $100 gift card. It's hard. I mean, you have to do, you, either you have to spend way, you have to spend over 100 bucks, which the store is going to love. You have to spend over 100 bucks to take and make sure you use the full value. Or you're going to spend like, you know, 93.76, and then there's like there's $6.24 and, and, uh, left on the card. Well, there ain't nothing at Macy's you can buy for $6.24. Nothing. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen anything. You, you find something, you let me know. But there's just nothing. And so you stick the card in your pocket. You don't buy it. And it's in, in your back of your head, there's only a couple bucks left on it. You forget about it. It expires. It drifts away. You lose it. Whatever. Billions of dollars is not spent on gift cards. So another thing that the stores love. I'm walking you down a path there, and this is what Facebook is doing. I'm telling you this. I am telling you this is Facebook strategy. They're not paying any transaction fees anymore. They've got the hundred bucks. You you've got a gift card. So when you come bring that in and you're gonna buy something, they're not paying a percent or two to MasterCard or American Express. They don't have any, they don't have any transaction costs, no, no, no mistakes with counting cash. All their transaction costs are gone. And the money's sitting in one of their bank accounts earning some sort of a rate of return. So they've got your money already. So, all right, so it's, so it's fake money. You're more likely to spend it. You're more likely to spend something more expensive than you would, would normally have spent, like it's in the chips. It's a gift card, so you're likely to not use it all or lose it and not feel bad about it, just forget about it, and it's not replaceable. It's, 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 they're going to make, and that's pure profit. Everything that happens in that is pure profit. It's across all stores. It's like it's billions of dollars per year. Look at Starbucks' annual report. Their gift card, you know, they carry forward themselves hundreds of millions of dollars on their books every year because of this. And finally, there's no transaction costs. So this is a dead-bang winner. The stores that sold the gift card make money at every turn. Because like a casino chip, people spend more frivolously. It's a gift card. There's likely to be some unreturned value. And transaction costs are gone. They make money on this. Okay? So Facebook Libra, it combines the worst of all of these things. Right? If my... Belief, and I have no inside information, and I can be the you know insert lawyer statement here. We, the attorneys of Jeff Hardy and the Jeff Effect, maintain and affirm that Jeff still has freedom of speech rights in their convoking voices, opinion in a public forum without fear of recrimination or being sued. So, please do not squash us like a bug. Um, 
I have no inside information, and I'm not speaking on their behalf, but it's my opinion that that's Zuckerberg's plan. He wants this particular Facebook Libra coin because he knows it's free money. If they can get people doing it, it's, it, he's got the coding guys to make it. If they can make it work, they're going to make money every, single, every which way it flows. They have no interest in a free and open transaction system. They want to captivate the economy. They want to captivate your economy. So it's kind of the opposite of what gave birth, in my opinion, what gave birth to the Bitcoin movement. Anyway, this has gone on way too long. Listen, so this is the story. I'm going to call this part one. I'm going to call this part one of my cryptocurrency series, and, and I hope there's a part two. But the part two depends upon the people in the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin community. I'm going to post online and, and see if I can get somebody with some, some clout and to come and argue. I'm going to tell them to listen to this podcast, and then I'm going to invite them to argue with me on, the pod, on another podcast. If I'm wrong, they'll shake me down. If I'm right, well, they just might not show up. We'll see. All right, folks, that is it. Again, way too long on this podcast, but uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you learned something about Bitcoin. And uh, I look forward to talking to you all again soon. In the meantime, do me a favor. Just, just do me a little favor. I work really hard on these things, and I care deeply. All I ask is that you take a few moments. Take, maybe, take like 37 and a half seconds and share, like, leave a quick review, Tell somebody else that you like the Jeff effect and that Jeff says something smart occasionally from time to time and that they should listen to at least one. And then we'll just call this whole thing even and go from there. Thanks it. Bye for now, folks. (laughs) 